0: How y'all doing there? Sure like to thank y'all for stopping by for another episode of this Removing the Illusion podcast. Man, look at here. Now y'all know regularly, regularly before we get started, i like to tell y'all what I'm smoking on. But this, but this early morning, I just got up a little bit because of something was on my little mind here. And I ain't got to smoking on no cigars yet. But I tell y'all what though, last night at the cigar spot, talking to the guys, you know, I, I picked up, You know, y'all know I've been smoking on on that uh, San Cristobal Papagayo. I picked up one last night in the cigar spot. You know, even though I had a couple here that I picked up a couple weeks ago, I mean, uh, last week or so, I had a couple here in my little humidor, but but y'all know when I go outside my house, I carry a few little cigars, you know, in my little bag, my cigar backpack, but I don't take none to the cigar spot. Because when I go into the cigar spot, I like to buy my cigars. I like to buy what I'm smoking on why I'm going to be there. And I like to buy me a few when I leave also. Because like I be telling y'all folks, I want y'all to support y'all local cigar lounge, you know. We need to keep our cigar lounge where as much mature folks can go and have a good socialized smoke with everybody else. You know what I mean? So, you know, I was sitting around there and uh, I'm sitting there and I'm faking Sitting, there, sitting around, no, not sitting around there, but I, this morning, this morning somewhere, I kind of woke up with something on my mind. But look here. Oh, I know what I was going to say about a cigar spot. When I was in there last night talking to the guys, right, because I picked up that uh, San Cristobal Papago, yo, right? Y'all know I got Louisiana education now. So that San Cristobal Papayago, okay? My man Jeremy from Asher Cigar was smoking on one of these sometime last year's. See what I'm saying? Now I talked to the guys, and you know I was telling them that I had went to um, Mary's Cuban Kitchen. You know what had me? We had me one of them good old Cuban sandwiches, right? And like I was telling y'all a few weeks ago on one of my old podcasts, I was looking up there and I saw uh, La Aroma de Cuba Maya Amora. I saw a sign up there, right? And so when I went to the cigar spot, I, you know, that night, I bought me a cigar. It was a cigar, right? And then, so I told the guys last night about, you know, the, um, how good that San Cristobal Papagayo was tasting last night. And then I mentioned the uh, La Roma de Cuba, Maya Amora. Now y'all know I got Louisiana in the so y'all, y- y'all kind of ragly know what I'm talking about here. I kind of mentioned it, and we were talking about Ashton, and I didn't know that that La aroma de Cuba was Ashton, also. Now, see, not like I told y'all folks, now I'm just kind of getting into this little cigar thing. I've been smoking for about Riley about two years now. So my palate is finally kind of, you kind of build up now. Because at first, when I started smoking, I thought it was like on TV, you know, you just get you on the big old fat cigars and you start smoking that thing, right? And I did that, and boy, I used to come home with a headache. Every night, every night I come home with a headache, my head just banging. I used to have to take a nap. He's had to take a nap in order in order in order in order for that cigar high or whatever to go down. But Dean Ross had told me one time at a cigar spot, the gentleman who owns the spot, he said if you eat some candy, like some peppermint or some chocolate or something like that, it'll bring your levels back down, you know, when you get that cigar buzz, that cigar headache. So I always started taking some candy around with me, right? But the more I start learning about cigars, between you know the mild, the medium, and the full body, and everything in between, I start getting a better education. And then also, you know, I start learning about you know handmade and the ones machine made. You know, a lot of times the machine made thing, they use them. Some people they, they use chemicals, they use chemicals in that stuff. You know, to put 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 in their cigars and make it. To get a you know a certain type of flavor you know but I like the handmade the hand rolled the natural cigars because the natural cigars is a natural leaf you know they put natural additives in there they don't be mixing all them chemicals in there you know methanol and all what I don't know if they use methanol I'm just kidding about that but I don't know what chemicals they use but perfumes and stuff like that but I don't know but they don't use I like my my cigars naturally so I was telling the guys about it and they say well that that little aroma de Cuba and that said crystal ball all that is an ashton brand so i talked to bobby who uh bobby wasn't get. well i hate to say bobby work at ron cigar but bobby bobby works at ron cigar he's he, bobby is so knowledgeable i'm gonna tell you about bobby too bobby do a thing called cigars for Royal warriors every i think tuesday and maybe thursday a group of the fellas get together and they uh and they and they package up cigars and send overseas to our troops. Now Bobby's is Bobby. I think Bobby has sent out probably over a million cigars to our troops overseas. Like I say, he do this thing called Cigar for Warriors. Different events, you know, goes on. He goes different, like in uh, Ybor City or down in Miami or down in uh, Corona down on Sand Lake. You know, Bobby. You know, and, and Bobby and his significant other, uh, Tammy. You know, she helps him out too. They get together and they go down there and they collect cigars. They have like a little booth where people can come by and donate money. And Bobby tells them all about Cigars for Warriors. People can donate money, you know, or people can bring their cigars and they ain't smoking. Donate their cigars. And let me tell you, Bobby puts a lot of work in him and Tammy. He puts a lot of work in for our troops. It's called Cigars for Warriors. Matter of fact, If you go to my website, since I'm not smoking on nothing right now, you're going to see an image of Cigar for Warriors. And there's also going to be a link there. For any of y'all folks out there, y'all got some money, y'all want to donate to Bobby's Group for Cigars and Warriors. Because see, when our troops over there in the war zones over there, they need some little little relaxation too. You see what I'm saying? And a good cigar is a good socialized relaxation. So Bobby, you know, he's, Bobby get them cigars together. man. and, 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 And usually if I'm off work, I'll meet the guys over there at the storage unit, and I try to give him a hand too, you know, packing these cigars up. And he sends out boxes. I mean, hundreds, thousands of boxes of cigars out. And the posters, the the, the donation of your money, your money goes to pay for posters, because the post office don't give Bobby them no breaks to send them cigars to the Warriors. They don't give them no break. So the, the, the posters, he's got to pay for them posters, and it can't come out his pocket. It come out our pockets because them our troops over there reason why we sleep so good every night over here in the United States is because our troops over there, you know, doing what they doing. You see what I'm saying? Now, I know people talking about whether it's right or it's wrong. I don't care nothing about that. Our troops is over there, and they need some relaxation. And a cigar is a good relaxation. So y'all needs to help, help, you know, help Bobby with, with, with some of his posters calls to take care of our troops. Let me see. I seen I see firsthand how many cigars... The guys be packed, he helping Bobby pack it, and Bobby stacks them, stacks of cigars, he takes them things to the post office. I see the work he puts in and I see the work that Tammy puts in with him. I go to I, I try to make it make it my make it my business. If if they if he's doing an event that's in Ybor City or 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 in uh, Orlando or somewhere, somewhere local within an hour, two hours, I make it my business to try to go down there and support. I sit around there at the booth with him, you know, I try to support him. So Cigars Warriors is a good thing And Bobby knows all about cigars It ain't nothing Bobby don't know about No cigars, I'm telling y'all Just like down there Corona saying Lake, them gentlemen down there They know their stuff Bobby knows his stuff too at Roz. Bobby knows his stuff Matter of fact, Bobby was in there I think that magazine officiado. Yeah, he was in that, that magazine officiado yeah, I, think, I think he was like the number one guy For Cigars for Warriors You see what I'm saying? And Bobby also a veteran too Oh, I did love Bobby. Bobby, all right. Bobby alright with me. Everybody up there at Roz is alright with me. So look, like I said, y'all take a look at my website and y'all see Bobby on there, his cigars for warrior thing, send a link. Y'all can either send y'all cigars, y'all ain't smoking, because y'all got thousands of them in your humor Send send your cigars to Bobby, you know, or you know, donate some money to cigars for warriors. You see what I'm saying? Donate money, cigars, so Bobby can get these post stamps and send cigars over there to our troops that's over there that need some relaxation. But look here, I was talking to Bobby, and Bobby said, well, you know, Maduro, uh, uh, St. Cristobal, uh, Ashton, because I goes in the U.S. it, but I really don't pay attention because I really wasn't that, that knowledgeable. So I, I see the sex section where Ashton, Ashton cigars at, right? And Bobby was like, "Well, let me show you here." Because I asked, Bobby, when I first got there, one time I asked Bobby about the San Cristobal papaya, right, papaga, yo. So Bobby said, "Well, right, what a what a San Cristobal papago, yo." All that is Ashton, which is la aroma de Cuba, you know, which in, in the Ashton cigar brands. I was like, man, I didn't know la. The Cuba, aroma uh, De Cuba. I know that was Ashton. Say crystal ball, Ashton. Ashton is Ashton. Ashton got quite, a, quite, a, quite a good nice cigars. They got some good. Sm- Cause let me tell you something. When I first called myself probably back there in two thousand and seven, right? I was working in Delaware. I was working with them in Delaware. I was re- working at the uh, General Motors Boxwood Road plant. You know, we was making them satin cars there at that time. Well, I was working literally almost 80 hours a week, seven days a week. Well, 80 hours a week, I was working on Midnight shift. So every maybe once a month or something like that, i I get some time off. So I would, I would live in Delaware, but I would drive to Philly, which Delaware to Philly, you know, downtown Philadelphia Philly is only maybe about 25 minutes, right? But down it, it, off Broad Street, I want to say 14th to 15th Street, one on the side street, it was a cigar lounge that I thought called the Mahogany Room and it was upstairs, right, and man, that place was fantastic, man, they had that good wood paneling on the wall, man, it, it man, it looked it, it look like one of them cigar lounges out the John Gotti days, you know what I mean, but it was a real nice cigar lounge, you know, called a Mahogany Room, I don't think it's that not because I think, you know, they probably making Philadelphia a smoke, smoke-free zone, you know, people want to treat other people Rice right now, you know, you can't, you know, you can't have a cigar nowhere, you, you can't smoke, you can't do nothing no more. This to be America free country. But don't y'all get me started on that. But every, you know, maybe once a, once a month, when I when I get that day off, I drive, I dress my little self up and I drive down the over drive uh drive over to Philly and I go to the mahogany room. Now the only thing that I knew at that time about cigars was the name Ashton. So I was always getting me an Ashton Cigar, and I ain't know nothing about cigars, right? And I would pay like $14 for this Ashton Cigar. I ain't know whether it was medium, mild, full body, I ain't know what it was, right? And I'd get me a Coke. i have me an Ashton Cigar and a Coke. Matter of fact, it was a Churchill. I know what it is now. I ain't know what it was back then, but it was an Ashton Churchill, right? And I would sit there and I'd smoke that cigar like I'm somebody. And I would get a headache out of this world. My head would be banging like Mike Tyson just knocked my head up against two cardboard Boscas. Man, look, I would have to, before I drive back to Delaware, I would have to walk around the block. Call myself, walk, get some air, walk around the block in Philly to get some air to, 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 to try to come down. Now, I ain't know nothing about no candy, chocolate, nothing like that at the time. Like I say, I just thought myself was big time smoking a cigar, a big $14 cigar, having me a coat, sitting here with all these folks looking like I'm impotent, you know what I mean? But then I live out that place, boy, my head to be banging me, oh, my head be banging me, I ain't know nothing about no doggone cigars, right? So every now and then, you know, I would have a good cigar, you know, I would have, a, I can't say a good cigar, I would have a cigar because I ain't know what was good or what was bad. But every time I was smoking, get me a cigar and I was it, because only thing I would buy is Aston, because again, that's all I knew was Aston. My head would always bang. Cause I ain't know nothing about the different, you know, the the, uh, the you know the, the the different uh the different levels, the different strength levels at the time, right? So that was something else, man, back there, boy that Philly. But you, but you know, like I say, cigars for warriors is a great thing. You know, I'm still learning about these cigars things and about the strength levels. Um, now, I, I didn't got on this acid thing. At one time, I was on the Arturo Fuerte kick because the lady, the daughter, she came down to Ross, uh, top of the world, of Florida, at our spot. She came down... And did, you know, we you know when them cigar reps, they come in, they do them little presentation little things. You know, she came in, we want her represented and met everybody at Raw. So I got our Arturo Fuente kick for a while. Now I'm kinda on this Ashton thing now. Because like I say, I always, I always knew Ashton. I just ain't know nothing about Ashton. And now I'm seeing some of it's just not the Ashton. Uh, the Churchill that they make, they also making they make the San Cristobal and they make the La Roma, the Cuba, and it's just fantastic smokes. Matter of fact, I would have a, I'd rather have the San Cristobal or the La Roma than a regular, you know, Ashton Churchill. That's just my preference now, because I'm know I'm learning all about these things. Matter of fact, I can't tell you when the last time I had an Ashton Churchill. I can't tell you, and I can, but I still have it, the taste in my palate. And it's not as good to me as the San Cristobal or the La Roma de Cuba. That's just my opinion. My opinion don't work for no hill of beans, okay? But let's get into what I what I was thinking about this morning here. You know what I was thinking about? Some came to me, I was thinking about dog whistle politics. Do y'all know what dog whistle politics is? Now after I got to thinking about this dog whistle politics day, I got to thinking about my Ain't Tate down there in Louisiana. You see what I'm saying? I ain't know the time I was just a little fella, you know, about knee high to a ducktail. I ain't, I ain't know nothing about no dog whistle politics. Only thing I know is some folks be saying some stuff, but it don't sound like that's what they mean. Because my ain't, my ain't, my uh my, uh, 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 my ain't, my uh, 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 what was her name? My I ain't, That's how I can't even remember. <laughs> my ain't Tay. My ain't Tay was mean. Oh, my ain't Tay was so doggone mean. My ain't Tay was mean than a rattlesnake. Oh man, she was just mean. But when she was always mean when my daddy left home. But when my daddy was home, she was always nice. Now I'm gonna tell y'all back on the back on the back end. On on the back end of what, what what we gonna take a listen to right now. Right now we gonna take a listen to we are we gonna check out what dog russell politics in. Then I'ma come back and talk to y'all on the back end about my ain't take. Now in the meantime, like I say, I'm not smoking on anything right now, but what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna go get dressed cause Today, this is this is Saturday morning. Today at noon, I'm meeting the fellas at one of the cigar buddies house. We playing shuffleboard. He got a Ron got a nice outside shuffleboard. You know, like them shuffleboard things, like on them boat decks. You know where they had the sticks and they and they got the little round disc and they push the disc, the, the 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 disc. They push the disc. Man, he got one of them on the outside. He got a nice one too. And today, man, we gonna do some creative. You know, they got these uh. I don't know. I, I don't know if they, silo, they silicone or whatever. These look like little silicone, like little salt pepper that you put on the, the shuffleboard uh, uh, thing, and it makes the it makes the uh, it makes the disc fly faster. Well, we are gonna do that today, boy, because we got a little shuffleboard table at the hangar that we use on Thursday. But it's a shuffleboard table with the little round disc and you put the salt or whatever on, on the thing and it makes that disc slide fast. Well, Ron has a live one, a big one, like I say, like on the boat that you gotta use a stick to move the disc. That's what we got today. We're got we gonna, we gonna, we gonna play shuffleboard today. We're gonna play bocce ball because it's gonna be a good day down here in Florida. We're gonna play bocce ball. We're gonna play shuffleboard and we're gonna play cornhole. And then as the evening progress, then the guys going to play poker. Now when they play poker, I'm going to sit there and take me a few pulls of my cigar. Then i probably leave because I don't play poker because I, I can't gamble. Because I, I I can't lose no money. You know I can't lose no money because I'm cheap. That's you why know, when I was in high school, I never liked to bet people. Cause I like, so I bet people, I don't like to pay them. And I figured like this, when they, even when I was a little young fella. If I bet somebody, I don't like to pay them, I don't pay them. They're going to beat me up. And eventually... I get killed for some like that, so I just figure I don't gamble at all. So I just watch the fellas for a few, then I come on, then I I, I come on. So while y'all listen, while y'all listen to this thing here on Dog Whistle Podcast, I'm gonna get up on here and go put my britches on and brush my teeth, and then I'm gonna come back here and talk to y'all more about this Dog a Podcast. I'm gonna tell y'all about my ain't take. She was the first one. She was the first one when I when I heard this, the first one I thought about when dog whistle politics, when she was shining me on was that little young fella. All right. Alright now. Well look here. Y'all listen to this right here and I'ma catch up with y'all on the flip side. All right now.
1: Dog whistle politics. Political messaging using coded language. Dog whistle politics is political messaging employing coded language that appears to mean one thing to the population of the general public at large while also simultaneously having an additional, different, or more specific resonance for a targeted subgroup. The analogy is to a dog whistle, whose ultrasonic tone is heard by dogs but inaudible to humans. The term is often confused with code words used in some specialist professions, but can be distinguished in that dog whistling is specific to the political realm, and the messaging referred to as the dog whistle has an understandable meaning for a general audience, rather than being incomprehensible. Origin and Meaning According to William Sapphire, the term dog whistle in reference to politics may have been derived from its use in the field of opinion polling. Sapphire quotes Richard Morin, director of polling for the Washington Post, as writing in 1988, subtle changes in question wording sometimes produce remarkably different results, Researchers call this the dog whistle effect, respondents hear something in the question that researchers do not. He speculates that campaign workers adapted the phrase from political pollsters. In her 2006 book, Voting for Jesus, Christianity and Politics in Australia, academic Amanda Lowry writes that the goal of the dog whistle is to appeal to the greatest possible number of electors while alienating the smallest possible number. She uses as an example politicians choosing broadly appealing words such as family values, which have extra resonance for Christians, while avoiding overt Christian moralizing that might be a turn off for non-Christian voters. Australian political theorist Robert E. Gooden argues that the problem with dog whistling is that it undermines democracy, because if voters have different understandings of what they were supporting during a campaign, the fact that they were seeming to support the same thing is democratically meaningless and does not give the dog whistler a policy mandate. History and Usage Australia The term was first picked up in Australian politics in the mid-1990s, and was frequently applied to the political campaigning of John Howard for throughout his 11 years as Australian Prime Minister and particularly in his fourth term, Howard was accused of communicating messages appealing to anxious Australian voters using code words such as un-Australian, mainstream, and illegals. One notable example was the Howard government's message on refugee arrivals. His government's tough stance on immigration was popular with voters, but was accused of using the issue to additionally send veiled messages of support to voters with racist leanings, while maintaining plausible deniability by avoiding overtly racist language. Another example was the publicity of the Australian Citizenship Test in 2007. It has been argued that the test may appear reasonable at face value, but is really intended to appeal to those opposing immigration from particular geographic regions. Canada During the 2015 Canadian federal election, the Conservative Party led by incumbent Prime Minister Stephen Harper was accused of communicating code words in a debate to appeal to his party's base supporters. Midway through the election campaign the Conservative Party hired Australian political strategist Linton Crosby as a political adviser when they fell to third place in the polls behind the Liberal Party and the New Democratic Party. During a televised election debate Stephen Harper while discussing the government's controversial decision to remove certain immigrants and refugee claimants from accessing Canada's health care system made reference to old-stock Canadians as being in support of the government's position. Opposition leaders, including former Quebec Liberal MP Marlene Jennings, called his words racist and divisive, as they are used to exclude Canadians of colour. United Kingdom. Linton Crosby, who had previously managed John Howard's four election campaigns in Australia, worked as a Conservative Party advisor during the 2005 UK general election, and the term was introduced to British political discussion at this time. In what Gooden calls the classic case of dog whistling, Crosby created a campaign for the Conservatives with the slogan Are You Thinking What We're Thinking?, a series of posters, billboards, TV commercials and direct mail pieces with messages like It's Not Racist to Impose Limits on Immigration and How Would You Feel If a Bloke on Early Release Attacked Your Daughter?, focused on controversial issues like insanitary hospitals, land grabs by squatters and restraints on police behaviour. Labour MP Diane Abbott described the 2013 Go Home Vans advertising campaign by the British Home Office as an example of dog whistle politics. In April 2016, Mayor of London and Conservative MP Boris Johnson was accused of dog-whistle racism by Shadow Chancellor of the Exchequer and Labour MP John McDonnell when Johnson suggested US President Barack Obama held a grudge against the United Kingdom due to his ancestral dislike of the British Empire as a result of his part Kenyan heritage, after Obama expressed his support for the UK to vote to remain in the European Union ahead of the UK's referendum on EU membership. In the 2016 London mayoral election, Conservative candidate Zach Goldsmith was accused of running a dog-whistle campaign against Labour's Sadiq Khan, playing on Khan's Muslim faith by suggesting he would target Hindus and Sikhs with a jeweler attacks and attempting to link him to extremists. Theresa May was accused of dog-whistle politics during the run-up to the UK leaving the European Union, after claiming EU citizens were jumping the queue. The Labour Party under Jeremy Corbyn has been accused of tolerating dog-whistle anti-Semitism in the party since he took the lead of the party. United States. The phrase states' rights, literally referring to powers of individual state governments in the United States, was described in 2007 by David Greenberg in Slate as code words for institutionalized segregation and racism. States' rights was the banner under which groups like the Defenders of State Sovereignty and Individual Liberties argued in 1955 against school desegregation. In 1981, former Republican Party strategist Lee Atwater, when giving an anonymous interview discussing Nixon's southern strategy, said. You start out in 1954 by saying, nigger, nigger, nigger. By 1968, you can't say nigger, that hurts you. Backfires. So you say stuff like forced busing, states' rights, and all that stuff. You're getting so abstract now, you're talking about cutting taxes. And all these things you're talking about are totally economic things, and a byproduct of them is that blacks get hurt worse than whites. And subconsciously, maybe that is part of it? I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that if it is getting that abstract, and that coded, that we are doing away with the racial problem one way or the other. You follow me, because obviously sitting around saying, we want to cut this, is much more abstract than even the busing thing, and a hell of a lot more abstract than nigger, nigger. Atwater was contrasting this with Ronald Reagan's campaign, which he felt was devoid of any kind of racism, any kind of reference. However, Ian Haney Lopez, an American law professor and author of the 2014 book Dog Whistle Politics, described Reagan as blowing a dog whistle when the candidate told stories about Cadillac driving welfare queens and strapping young bucks buying T-bone steaks with food stamps while he was campaigning for the presidency he argues that such rhetoric pushes middle-class white Americans to vote against their economic self-interest in order to punish undeserving minorities who, they believe, are receiving too much public assistance at their expense. According to Lopez, conservative middle-class whites, convinced by powerful economic interests that minorities are the enemy, supported politicians who promised to curb illegal immigration and crack down on crime but inadvertently also voted for policies that favor the extremely rich, Such as slashing taxes for top income brackets, giving corporations more regulatory control over industry and financial markets, union busting, cutting pensions for future public employees, reducing funding for public schools, and retrenching the social welfare state. He argues that these same voters cannot link rising inequality which has impacted their lives to the policy agendas they support, which resulted in a massive transfer of wealth to the top 1% of the population since the 1980s. Journalist Craig Unger wrote that President George W. Bush and Karl Rove used coded dog whistle language in political campaigning, delivering one message to the overall electorate while at the same time delivering quite a different message to a targeted evangelical Christian political base. William Sapphire, in Sapphire's Political Dictionary, offered the example of Bush's criticism during the 2004 presidential campaign of the U.S. Supreme Court's 1,857 Dred Scott decision denying the U.S. citizenship of any African American. To most listeners the criticism seemed innocuous, Sapphire wrote, but sharp-eared observers understood the remark to be a pointed reminder that Supreme Court decisions can be reversed, and a signal that, if re-elected, Bush might nominate to the Supreme Court a justice who would overturn Roe v. Wade. One this view is echoed in a 2004 Los Angeles Times article by Peter Walst 35. During the 2008 Democratic primaries, writer Enid Lynette Logan criticized Hillary Clinton's campaign's reliance on code words and innuendo seemingly designed to frame Barack Obama's race as problematic, saying Obama was characterized by the Clinton campaign and its prominent supporters as anti-white due to his association with Reverend Jeremiah Wright, as able to attract only black votes, as anti-patriotic, a drug user, possibly a drug seller, and married to an angry, ungrateful black woman. In 2012, journalist Soledad O'Brien used the phrase dog whistle to describe Tea Party Express representative Amy Creamer's accusation that Obama does not love America. Also in that election cycle, Obama's campaign ran an ad in Ohio that said Mitt Romney was not one of us. 38 The ad, which Washington Post journalist Karen Tumulty said echoes a slogan that has been used as a racial code over at least the past half century. During the 2014 Republican Senate primary in Mississippi, a scandal emerged with politicians accused of attempting to influence the public by using such code words as food stamps. Senator Ted Cruz called for an investigation, saying that the ads they ran were racially charged false attacks. During the 2016 presidential election campaign and on a number of occasions throughout his presidency, Donald Trump has been accused of using racial and anti-Semitic dog whistling techniques by politicians and major news outlets. Now, let's take a look at four racial dog whistles that politicians use. While pretending they're not racist. When Trump supporter Helen Barristan's husband, an undocumented Mexican immigrant, was deported last month, she was shocked according to a recent interview by Washington Post reporter Peter Hawley. Beresteyn claimed that she thought Trump would hold true to his promise of only going after bad hombres, not her husband. While reading this, I thought, this is so freaking ridiculous. This white woman really voted for someone whose virulent racism and xenophobia was an inherent part of his campaign, and then really thought her brown, immigrant spouse wouldn't be affected by it? It reminded me of the infamous tweet, I never thought leopards would eat my face, sobs woman who voted for the leopards eating people's faces party. It seemed so obvious to me, and thousands of others I saw discussing it via social media, that despite not explicitly spelling it out, Trump was speaking about Mexicans and other Latinx in his speeches about drug lords and bad hombres. What I didn't realize until further research was that he was using an old political tactic called dog whistle politics. In his book, Dog Whistle Politics. How Coded Racial Appeals Have Reinvented Racism and Wrecked the Middle Class, Ian Haney-Lopez explains that dog-whistling simply means speaking in code to a target audience. According to Sapphire's Political Dictionary, the Washington Post may have first used the term dog-whistle in an article about political polling in 1988. It explained that subtle changes in poll wordings led to respondents understanding the questions differently than the researchers did. Racial dog whistles are often sneakily used when politicians want to speak about race specifically to their target audience. The coded messages are used to reinforce racist ideas that the country's societal and economic problems are because of undeserving, lazy, and violent people of color. There are three aspects involved when politicians use racial dog whistles, according to Haney Lopez. First, politicians force race into the conversation through thinly veiled racist remarks against people of color. Second, They make sure to not directly reference any one racial or ethnic group, so they can't be accused of direct racism. And third, they shame any critics who try to call them out on the racist comments. While Trump has been a master at using racial dog whistles to get in favor with white voters, he isn't the only politician to ever use them. Ever since the Republican Southern strategy of the 1960s, many politicians have used racial dog whistles to appeal to white Americans, regardless of their politics. Racial dog whistles have even worked on white liberal and moderate voters, who might consciously be against racism, but still hold implicit biases. So what are some other ways politicians, namely presidents, have employed racial dog whistles and how has it negatively impacted our communities? Here are four major examples. 1 Law and order. On the surface, the phrase law and order seems pretty non-threatening. Politicians who use it seem to be saying that their policies will focus on making sure the law will be upheld, and that any lawbreakers will be held accountable. What could be so bad about that? The dog whistle, law and order is often used to police low-income communities, particularly black and Latinx people. Politicians use the phrase to signal that people of color are inherently criminal, and that we defy laws for no good reason. It implies that extra measures, such as broken windows policing, which promotes harsh punishment strategies under the belief that tolerating minor infractions encourages more serious violent crimes, need to be implemented in order to uphold the law. Famously used by, Richard Nixon used the rhetoric of law and order in 1968 to appeal to white voters who were angry about integration. He claimed that he was a candidate for the silent majority, the other population of whites who weren't protesting social injustices like Jim Crow and the Vietnam War. In his own words, My campaign ad hits it right on the nose. It's all about law and order and the damn g r o Puerto Rican groups out there. How it affects us today, with the exception of Trump saying we need more law and order, which would directly impact Black and Latinx neighborhoods, the phrase isn't used much anymore. However, the message behind it still resonates with conservatives and liberals alike. When groups like Black Lives Matter use civil disobedience, like when they shut down the 405 freeway in Inglewood CA last year, similar rhetoric to law and order was used to police their actions. Liberals and conservatives alike objected to BLM because they claimed that the protests were disrupting people's lives and promoting rioting and violence. In that case, upholding the status quo and obeying the law was the most important thing, instead of recognizing that the laws are unjust and need to be fixed. To The Welfare Queen Devoid of context Welfare queen is a strange phrase. Without any context, it seems to be talking about a woman who receives government assistance. On its own, why would that be bad? The dog whistle, historically, the term welfare queen has been a commonly used stereotype against black women. It's used to imply that black women on social programs like welfare are lazy people who don't do anything to help themselves. Instead, they have children to use up government money and the tax dollars of hard-working, red, white, Americans to live luxuriously. Famously used by, Ronald Reagan first hinted at the stereotype in 1976, while he was campaigning and promoting his anti-government assistance stance. In Reagan’s speeches, he never explicitly used the term black or African-American. Instead, he drew upon stereotypes of black people, such as the oversexualized woman and the violent big, black buck tropes, to draw the connection between race and criminality. These speeches implied that black people were criminals who refused to work. Instead, they tricked the government by abusing welfare systems to buy themselves extravagant things. One of his speeches in particular spoke about how frustrating it was to buy a hamburger at the grocery store, when someone on welfare could buy a T-bone steak. In his own words, she used 80 names, 30 addresses, and 15 telephone numbers to collect food stamps, social security, Veterans' benefits for four non existent deceased veteran husbands, as well as welfare. Her tax free cash income alone has been running $150,000 a year. How it affects us today, because of this rhetoric, an increasing amount of restrictions are placed on public assistance programs, many of which make it even more impossible for people to pull themselves out of poverty. This is an issue because, as the Census Bureau data has proven, welfare programs are extremely effective. These programs aren't a burden on society, but rather ways to help people and stimulate the economy. These types of stereotypes about black people living off the government still exist today and black people are still demonized for needing public assistance. For instance, back in 2012, then GOP candidate Rick Santorum stated he was against welfare because he didn't want to make black people's lives better by giving them somebody else's money. In 2015, Gene Alday, a republican politician from mississippi claimed that all the blacks are getting food stamps and what i call welfare crazy checks they don't work three tough on crime saying tough on crime is pretty similar to saying law and order politicians who use it promise that they'll enact policies that make the united states safer to live in in theory this should work for everyone who wants to live somewhere that lets bad criminals go the dog whistle Tough on crime is primarily used as a code for tough on black and latinx people who are dangerous. Tough on crime politicians are generally always in support of increased police presence and harsh punitive measures for nonviolent crimes, which have historically not only put people of color in jails, but in many cases have caused their murders at the hands of the police. Famously used by Bill Clinton's tough on crime speeches during his presidential campaigns in the 1990s were used to sway white voters toward the new Democrats. Unlike previous Democrats, Clinton's campaign promises leaned more to the right and included his support for things, such as supporting the death penalty and increased welfare restrictions. Clinton spoke about how it was important to crack down on inner-city criminals in order to make the country safer. He later created policies such as the 1994 Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act, which expanded measures that doled out harsh sentences. Among other things, It increased funding for prisons and implemented a three-strikes-mandatory life sentence policy that locked up many black and Latinx for minor offenses. In his own words, I can be nicked a lot, but no one can say I'm soft on crime. How it affects us today, the policies that Clinton enacted negatively impacted black communities and played a key role in molding mass incarceration as we know it today. Civil rights lawyer and advocate Michelle Alexander explains in The New Jim Crow, once again, a new system of racialized social control was created by exploiting the vulnerabilities and racial resentments of poor and working-class whites. Today, black people are incarcerated 5.1 times the rate of white people, according to a report by the Sentencing Project. For War on Terror. This phrase evokes an image of the U.S. military, and the nation, banding together to fight against all evils that threaten our liberty and justice. And who wouldn't want to fight terror and defend our freedom? The dog whistle. What isn't explicit is that the terror that many politicians want us to go to war against are actually people of Arab and Muslim descent, who, for no reason at all, hate everything the U.S. stands for, like freedom and women's rights. Proponents of fighting the war on terror often push for more military funding, invasions into other countries, and stricter immigration laws, all in the name of keeping white Americans safe from evil Arab and Muslim people. Famously used by Immediately after September 11, George W. Bush declared we would be going to war with all terrorists capable of harming the U.S., and created a large-scale military campaign in order to do so. In particular, Bush cited North Korea, Iraq, and Iran as countries that were hiding weapons of mass destruction and that actively trampled on their citizens' rights. In his 2002 State of the Union address, he said these nations constitute an axis of evil, arming to threaten the peace of the world. This also led to nationwide acts of racism, xenophobia and islamophobia against all people coded as Muslim and Arab. According to the FBI, hate crimes against Muslim people or people believed to be Muslim went up 1,600% after September 11th. In his own words, our war on terror begins with Al-Qaeda, but it does not end there. It will not end until every terrorist group of global reach has been found, stopped and defeated. How it affects us today. Muslims, Sikhs, Arabs, South Asians, and people perceived to be members of these groups in the United States have been continuously stereotyped as anti-American terrorists and have been brutalized and forced to apologize for it. Two Indian men, for instance, were shot in a Kansas bar in February by a white man who yelled, get out of my country. The suspect gloated that he killed two Iranian men. Last year, a new study released by California State University, San Bernardino found that hate crimes against Muslims were up 78% in 2015. In addition to domestic hate crimes, the US continues to bomb countless Muslim-majority countries while simultaneously banning Muslim refugees from entering, all in the name of keeping America safe. Just recently, the US military attacked Syria and Afghanistan in the name of resisting terrorism. And it hasn't just happened under the current president. Under President Obama, There were more than 400 drone strikes in Pakistan, Yemen, and Africa from 2009 to 2015. This is, of course, an incomplete list. There are countless numbers of racial dog whistles that politicians use to garner support for and win their campaigns. Because racial dog whistles have become so ingrained in U.S. politics, harmful stereotypes have, in a sense, become mainstream ideologies. They work to reinforce the idea that marginalized people are the problem. When politicians use these coded messages, they continue to push fear-mongering ideas and enact policies that are downright dangerous. It's important that we continue to look for those underlying messages, and continue to call politicians out, no matter how much they deny being racist. So keep on listening, that annoying buzzing you hear when President 45 speaks is probably him blowing a whistle.
0: <laughs> what y'all think about that? Dog whistle politics, man let me tell you something, Now, like i was tell y'all before, my aunt Tay was probably the first one that I could think back now directly and think about who used dog whistle politics, because when I was coming up I told y'all that one was me and a rattler stick with a rattler cut off, she was just downright mean, but it was kind of confusing, because when my daddy was home, she was downright nicer than a bunny rabbit, I used to had me always confused. You know, like, I can remember one time, you know, I was a little fella, I probably was probably was, no, was down there in Louisiana, I probably was no more than probably about, I would say about four years old, four or five years old. Now, I tell you, between kids, four or five years old a day, and four or five years old, when I was a little fella back there in Louisiana, see, where we lived, we lived down there in Sunnyside, in Louisiana, and in back of my grandma's house, where my daddy stayed, and my aunt stayed there too, and back, of the, in back was uh, a train tracks. Now, my daddy and mama were separated at the time, but every weekend and in the summertime, we would go stay with my dad. So this was like here. This was in the summertime when I was down there at my dad's house, right? Now, at that time, also, my dad we my dad lived in Sunnyside and mom's lived in Sunnyside. But if you take the train, you you, you can walk the train the back the train tracks the back at my dad's house. You can walk the train tracks. And I would say, if I'm thinking about it right now, it didn't seem like it was that long back then. But you walk the train tracks, you can be. It'll take you probably about maybe 30 minutes, maybe 30 or 40 minutes to walk the train track to get to my mom's house. It wasn't that far, you know, as a little fella. I'm thinking thinking about the time wise. You see, back then it was summertime, so whenever I went, whenever I wanted to go to mom's house where dad went to work, I would hit the train tracks, walk the train tracks. Like say, four, five years old. And I would walk real slow, you know, because I used to stop by the ditch, because it had the um, it had the bridge over the ditch. And if you walk on walk across the bridge, you stop on the bridge and you can look down. Sometimes you can, you can see some water moccasins down there on the bank kind of sunny. Or the water was so clear you can look down and you maybe see some crawfish down there. See some crawfish down there, then you go down there, you go get you a string with some salt meat, right? And you go down there and try to and and and, and, and try to hook some of them crawfish. Out That pond usually when it rains, with rain a lot, you get some crawfish down there, you know. So, like I say, you know, kids four or five years old today, they, they, they can't do what we did. You know, these little kids, they, you know, I ain't gonna call y'all kids stupid, but y'all little kids, you, you know, y'all just can't do what we did. Four or five years old, I used to hit the train track. So, I remember one particular time, you know, because this, you know, this, you know, this is how my ain't take was. You know, oh, you know, when, when my dad was home, oh, that's my little baby dad. Oh, he's so precious, you know, when my daddy's sitting there, right? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, he's a, come here. He's a good boy, all that stuff right there, right? Now, like I said, I'm a little four or five years old. Now, I'm looking at this, right? But then when my dad leave, right, we leave for work like early in the morning because I was sleep with my dad. Me, my dad, and my brother, we sleep together in the same bed, Right? So my dad gets up and go to work like at, you know, six in the four, four, five, six in the morning. He get up and go to work. Right? When he get up and go to work, my ain't table come back to the back room and hurry up out her hurry us up out the bed. He about six in the morning. She kicking us out the dog on bed. Y'all get y'all little tails up out that bed. All that y'all wanna do is sleep all dog day. But she be cussing. You know, get up, get out of that bed, make that bed up. And get on outside, cause back down there in Louisiana, soon as that day break through that through through the windows, you had to get up out the bed. You couldn't sleep all day like these old lazy kids day. You could sleep all day. You had to get up out of the bed and you had to get out of the house. Now if it was Saturday, you had chores on Saturday, because Saturday was a cleaning day on Saturday. But she would get up, he would come back there, you know, on the way there, terrorize her, get y'all little tales about that bed. Yeah, right, y'all, y'all little lazy little so and so, so you ain't gonna be sitting around here all day, ain't doing nothing. Get on outside, and go do something, right? My dad just left, right? She going off, right? So we get about the bed, right now. When you get about the bed, right, you got to make the bed up. When you make the bed up, right, then I mean, you got to get outside. You can't hang around. You can't sit inside the house. So, here she go cussing when you, when you leave, you go outside the house, she cuss. What y'all do, y'all ain't gonna sit around out there. Y'all gotta cut that grass, or you gotta put some, you see, in the, you go in the old house, in the old house we had in the back of the main house, in the back of the old house, had a lot of old clothes. Y'all go in that old house, y'all get some long shirts on, and lamp pants, and y'all climb that fig tree. See, we had fig tree, I hate that, y'all go fig tree, because that fig tree was itchy. That fig tree was, it, fig tree was itchy, so you had to put long clothes on. And he says, I was a little one, he's always sitting me at the top of the fig tree. Shake the fig tree to knock the fig down so my cousin BB can pick him up. Hey, that fig tree. So she would all just talked to any kind of way. And then just call me all kind of little, I can't, I don't want to cuss, call me all kind of little bad, confusing names at the little time. And I used to be so confused by this lady, right? And so I would go, what I would do, I would leave out the backyard and I would hit the train train, like I say, and I'll walk to my mama house. And like I said, I walk real slow because Dad leaves at 6, but he get off of work at 4.30. So if I hang around the big house with my Aunt Ted, she she's going to be cussing and fussing. And calling me all kind of little, you know, B-words and all that kind of stuff like that, right? So I hit the train tracks and I walk real slow to my mama house. You know, I play around a ditch, look at the ditch and, you know, walk the train tracks. I may, you know, check the car boxes to see if there's a train car box open or one of them big, uh, my, my, my main place I used to love to hang out on the train tracks. They had this, uh, they had this big, uh, you know, you know what they put rocks in. It not a car box, but it's, it's a rock truck. It's an open top with they would they pile of rocks in or coals in. They used to have some of those. I used to like to climb up in in in, in, those, in those and and go down deep in there and sit into those coal or, or, or rock rock uh, car boxes. But uh, I would walk real slow, right? But then. When it brown brown, when I figure my daddy about to get off work, I'll hit the train tracks and I'll run back down the sand, sunny side on train tracks, and I will go sit on the curb. And when I sit on the curb, I can look to my right. And I can see my daddy when when when, uh, when that when that black Buick is coming up the street. So I sit out there that high sun, I sit on that curb when I figure he about to get off work, and I wait for, his, for his, that black Buick about to come, come up the street, right? Because it ain't Tay, would be just a cousin. Boy, get your little tail torso out of that high Get out there. Honest, 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 honest gonna be, you always see about that, way, you no know honest, right? That was my, my daddy's name, Ernest, she called her honest. But honest. And I'm sitting out there, I'm like, why that woman? I, you know, I, I'm thinking to myself, you know, I can't really figure out, I'm like, why that, you know, I, I guess if I had to figure out right now, we said, I said, why this woman sweating me? Why the woman always on my case, right? I mean, there was every day in the summertime was a, when 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 uh when we was down at Daddy's house when Daddy went to work, it was Monday through Friday. This this this, this, this was this woman every day just harassing me. <laughs> I leave out the house, I sell the curb, I go to Mama' house or sometimes I, I go to, I go to my I go to my Aunt Jeradine' house and Uncle Henry's house. They lived in the Sonia quarters. See, we lived in the Sonia side, They lived in the Sonia quarters. Or I walk over to Sonia quarters, Uncle Henry and Jardine house. Or I go down there, I go to hit the train tracks and I go down to my mama's house. Or I just, hang, I, I just hang out. I just hang out on the train tracks back there. You know, but then like I say, I always go and sit on that curve Wait on my daddy, come on street with that big black music right I Just sit out there, right? And so, and then she be on the porch or the gear. She be on the front yard, right? Look, Looking at me on the curb. Calling me all kind of names. Why I'm sitting my little black tail out there, waiting on no people to come, waiting on my daddy come to the street. All kind of little nasty stuff, right? When daddy coming out, when I when I see that Buick, when I see that Buick come up the street, boy, I be just as happy as a junko about to eat me a raccoon. Man, ooh, boy, I be happy, boy. Here come my daddy, right? And when daddy drive up, boy, I run, boy, and I grab and hug on his leg, boy, and boy, I, boy, I just love my daddy so well. My daddy was the greatest man that ever lived. My daddy was the greatest man that ever walked this earth. Now, I don't know who y'all greatest man was, but the greatest man that walked this earth was, was my daddy. And boy, I just hug old daddy, boy. And then, you know, we had a gate, right? Dad, pulled, pu- Dad pulls in front of the gate. Gets out of the car. I grab, run up there, grab his leg, boy. Boy, that go, my daddy, my daddy home, right? And we walk through the gate, and ain't ain't out of, ain't, I mean, uh, 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 God damn, ain't out of me. I love they out of me. They, uh, um ain't Tay. Ain't Tay be setting her tail up on the Gary in Louisiana, right? It'd be like 90, it'd be like 97 degrees. She's to be setting her butt on the tail in the swing outside with just her pants on with a bra. Pants on and a bra. My ain't Tay sitting her tail out there. And all of a sudden, when I come, when, when, when daddy comes through the gate and I'm holding on daddy's leg, all of a sudden nah, I'm her little baby. I'm sp- oh look at it. Oh, that's so cute. That boy that love his daddy. Oh, look at that. Come here, come here, give your AT a hug. Now, like I say, this used to confuse me. I used to be about as confused as a bat flying around with his sonar turned off. I'm confused. That woman been nasty to me all day. Now, I ain't the brightest in the pot, but at least at four five years old, I knew that something was kind of two sided about this woman. This woman had two faces. You know, I can put it all together. Now, but back then, I couldn't rightly put it together. She's saying one thing, but then earlier, she was saying another thing. And now, she's saying what she's saying now, but I'm putting it together. Now, she was doing dog whistle back then. See, I was a little baby back then, right? And I love my daddy. Oh, he just loved it, all that kind of stuff. But that's not what she really meant. She probably meant this little bastard Little bastard always hanging around his daddy, you know. He, you know, he ain't nothing, his mama ain't nothing. Because what I later found out was she ain't like my mama. And see, I look more, more like my mama than my daddy. So she had something against me because I look more like my mama. Now, I found all this out later, but see, she was dog whistling back then when daddy came home. I was her little baby. I was precious. Oh, look at that boy. He just loved his daddy. In other words, she was saying, look at that, look at that little so-and-so. He just like his mama. He ain't no, no doggone good. You see what I'm saying? My auntie was doing dog whistle. And I grew up, see, I grew up, I don't like fake people. I don't like to be around fake people. Because, see, I can spot fake people. Because, see, my, my auntie was fake. And I had to live with her the summertime with that fake person. I just didn't know that she was doing dog whistling. You see what I'm saying? And you get a lot of these politicians out here, that's what they do too. They pander. See, pandering is dog whistling. That's what I call pandering. It's dog whistling. You know, some of these politicians, they just like my A-Tate. Just like my A-Tate. They want to kiss a baby when the camera's on and they want to kick the baby when the camera's off. Just like A-Tate. So you got to watch people when you don't get busy. When I'm listening to this, it's like, this is what I hate. I hate when I go to a restaurant, right? I go to a restaurant, I go to a store, especially like if I go to a, a, a fast food place and people call you and, and, and the girl behind the counter, she may call you baby. Oh, honey. Oh, thanks, hon. Thanks, hon. Oh, thanks. I hate that. Why are you calling me? I'm not your honey. Why you calling me baby? Is that supposed to be something special? at in, in, in these restaurants, and these like you go to McDonald's somewhere, they, they especially at McDonald's or these fast food restaurants. they got it bad with that honey and baby. Thanks, honey. Thanks, hon. Thanks, baby. Where in business did that supposed to be professional? Huh? When you don't know me, how you calling me honey Oh hon? Thanks, hon. Or oh, thanks, baby. I don't think that's flattering to me. That's sexist. You looking at me like I'm a sexist, but what you really mean, is, because you don't know me, is you calling me an a-hole, right? It's like I hate people when, when people say, "Okay, boss," you know, a big going, All right, boss, I take care of that, boss. All right, boss, calling somebody boss isn't flattering. Boss is what slaves used to call the white people. All right, boss, you know, you know, black people was dog whistling. We was dog whistling. You know, you 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 that slave everything but a son of God. That slave calling calling that, calling that white slave on it, they was when he's calling boss, that was derogatory. That wasn't a sign of respect. So in these businesses today, when somebody calls you, all right, boss, I'll take care of that boss, to me, I'm a manager. Don't call me boss. I'm not your boss. I'm your manager, but I'm not your boss. Because that's because because what you're telling me when you call me boss is you calling me a bad name inside your head. You calling me an A-hole or you calling me something like that. That's what boss mean. Boss is disrespectful when somebody calls you just a boss on these jobs. When a girl at a restaurant whatever call you, hon, or thanks, honey, thanks, that's not flattering. That's dog whistling. They call you something totally opposite. I hate that. Whenever I go to a restaurant or somewhere and the girl take my money and I pay for something and they say, oh, thanks, honey, or, I say, I say oh, oh, I'm not your honey. Okay? No disrespect, but I ain't your honey. Don't call me honey. Or if I'm somewhere, somebody call me Bob. I'm not your boss. Because when you call me this thing, you're saying something derogatory to me. Because we, we ain't like that. So people got these little. So whether you rich or you poor, or whatever your social economic group is, people still have these dog whistle codes that they say amongst each other. Not just in politics. We dog whistle all the time. I'm not gonna lie. I dog whistle a lot of times too. You know when I when, I, when I'm talking to my manager. Or if, I, if I'm talking to somebody who, uh, who, 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 who who's offending me or who I don't have no respect for. Because people need people. I dog whistle too. Everybody dog whistle. You see what I'm saying? But I can't stand fake people. And I know when somebody dog whistling. It's, like, it's just not in politics. Dog whistle, every, everybody do it. Politicians just do it more. Because they're trying to get something from you. You see? So dog whistling was very interesting to me When I first heard it Matter of fact, I, this is something that I recently came across I think I listened to a podcast or something And they was talking about dog whistling I'm like, what is dog whistling? You know, they didn't go into a breakdown What they explained They were saying that the politician Or whatever that they was talking about They were saying, you know, he was dog whistling So I went and looked up dog whistlers And did my little research on dog whistling That's why I came up with the little thing here you know, dog whistle politics. So, you know, a lot of times, like I say, you got to watch what people say. You know, people say a lot of things they don't mean. People, people, people be flattering you, but they don't mean it. I probably how they probably, probably how they say Hollywood is. They probably say Hollywood like that. But I think anything like that was when, when somebody is flattering you to get something out of you, but saying what they really don't say. You know, my daddy, my daddy rarely talks. When my daddy said something, he was like E.F. Hutton. When my daddy spoke, you listen. Because he didn't talk that day often. And he always told me, if you can't say something good about somebody, don't say nothing at all. Don't say nothing at all. Don't be trying to flatter people and lie to people and shine people on. That's you what know, my ain't Tate it, and I hated that. That's why I try not to do that to people. I try to be constantly aware and not do that to people. You know, If I got nothing good to say about somebody, I, I shouldn't be saying anything about that, about that person. And when I'm talking to that person, if I don't like them, I shouldn't be acting like I like them. I shouldn't be nasty to them. But I but I shouldn't be overly accommodating to them either. What I should do is get 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 from get from away from around them as quick as I can, and that's usually what I do. If I if if I really ain't got no taste bud for somebody, I can get on from around them. Because ain't no sense in me sitting here with this fake smile on my face And saying stuff that I really don't even understand what I'm saying Because I really don't mean it Now that's what I try to do I try to just get around for folks that I, that I just ain't got a distaste in my taste buds for But everybody ain't like that Because see in this country everybody wants something from somebody else You only get a head off somebody else's back So people flatter you, they, 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 they they propaganda you, they dog whistle, they pander, you know, everybody wants to get something somebody else, and the best way to do it is to use words, right? Words are so easy to use, but so destructive at the same time. So I don't know, I'm saying this sometimes, you just got to listen to folks, you got to listen to folks, you got to watch folks, how folks interact with you. You know, how their facial expressions are when they talking to you. You know, you got to watch a whole lot of cues on people. Especially people that you kind of, you know, that you're kind of curious about. You know, you're kind of curious about putting putting them inside your space. That's all I'm just saying. You know, dog whistle politics is just not politics. Dog whistle is just not politics. Dog whistle is in life in general. Now, me myself is, I try personally not to let folks run a lot of space in my head. I'm just learning this too. So I don't wanna I don't I, I don't wanna know, I don't wanna know 10,000 people. I don't even wanna know about other people's problems. Don't tell me your problems. I don't want I got no problems of my own. Because I don't wanna be thinking about your problems when I'm when when I'm when when I'm sitting up here, you know, doing my little sewing or or doing or working on my little pie talk here or smoking me a cigar. I don't wanna think about your problems. But see, I want to think about your problem when you told me your problems. So I try to limit the amount of people I keep in my head and in my space. Now I know people is high and by, and that's perfect. Nothing wrong road high and by, high and by ain't dog whistling, even for somebody that you don't like. High and by is high and it's by, and you keep it moving. But when you stop and you use words that you don't wrong, that you don't really mean, right? Or you talk derogatory to somebody, you know, about them in their face, and you really don't mean it. Like that huh? you know, you pay some money. Oh, thanks huh? oh, thanks sweetheart. Don't call me sweetheart, I hate that. Don't call me, sweet. I'm not your sweetheart, woman. You only make $4 an hour, take my dang old money and let's keep it pushing. And it don't matter about how much money the person make. It's the thing about it is that it's just derogatory. And then another thing I hate when people say, God bless, have a nice day. God bless, have a nice day. How you know everybody believe in God? That's another thing I do running. God bless, have a nice day. Do you really want me to have a nice day or are you just saying that? See, you know what I mean? Have a nice day. You just say that? You got up there with a bad day and a bad movie, you tell me have a, have a have a have a nice day. God bless. Do you really mean that? See, all that's to me is dog whistling. You don't really mean it, don't say it. Just take my money, let me pay what i pay for, just say thank you, or I say thank you, and we going our both ways. That's genuine. Don't call me in words that you don't know nothing about me. And don't tell me to have something that you ain't even having. Which is a good day or bad day. <laughs> Alright, I think I went on a rant on this one right here. But look here. Now y'all know like I always tell y'all. Y'all support y'all local cigar spot. Y'all can go online to JRE, Corona, Holtz. Uh, uh, Whatever these little cigar things is Where you can be on cigar And you can get you some boxes of cigars At a good price price to fill your humidor up Ain't nothing wrong with that But you got to go shop local At your local cigar spot You got to go have a cigar You know, have you a little drink Around a little social setting Around some good genuine folks Folks that, that's going to put no dog whistling on you And you got to watch dude, They're putting dog whistling on you in the cigar spot But, usually I, but I'm just saying you to go to people that you can have a nice genuine conversation with. Without all that old crazy stuff. Support your local cigar establishment. Now I'm going to get out here and tell y'all what I always tell y'all in my closing. In life, y'all take care of everybody. More y'all take care of y'all self first. All right now.